Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And today we're really excited. We get to speak to another one of the cutting edge litigators in our bar, David Fish. David is the original founder and one of the principals of the Fish Potter Bolaños PC law firm. It used to be Fish Law Firm. David is an impressive individual. He graduated number two in his law school class from NIU. Prior to starting his own firm, David worked for Klein, Thorpe, and Jenkins, the Collins Law Firm, and Jenner and Block in Chicago. He has been a leader in the plaintiff's bar and on the cutting edge, as I said, in pursuing new and important causes of action for workers and consumers alike, including bringing large class actions under statutes like the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. I don't know why I choked on that, or BIPA is what we like to call it. And I do encourage everybody to check out Fish Potter Bolaños's website to see a more detailed bio for David. And as we're going to cover in our next show with David, all of the incredible pro bono and charity work that his firm does. David, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to see you. It's good to see you too. We get to see your face. Uh, we, we always see people by email, so it's nice every now and again to see what remind ourselves what each other looks like. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's jump in, David. As I mentioned in your intro, you've got a really impressive resume. Your firm has brought some really impressive verdicts and settlements in class action cases before, so we thought we would start there. To the extent we have any non-lawyers listening, I want to start there. Can you just talk a little bit about what it means to bring a class action versus uh, just me versus you lawsuit or single plaintiff lawsuit and what the implications are and why we care about that? Yeah, so a class action is a group of people who sue together and try to get a result that is common to everybody. You know, it can be a matter of having 50 people or it can be, you know, many, many millions of people all together. Typically, there are smaller cases. You know, you don't, if you have a case that is valued at hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're probably going to pursue that individually. But if you have a case worth, you know, a thousand dollars, then you would probably want to team up with other people because you're not going to bring an individual case for a small amount of money. Yeah, there's a huge benefit to each individual to work together. I mean, there's filing fees, there's attorney's costs, all that type of stuff. So by working together, they can spread around those costs as opposed to one person having to just eat all of it. Yeah, we we actually just, I mean, here's a good example. Two weeks ago, we settled a case against everybody's favorite liquor store, Benny's Beverage Depot. And our named plaintiff, the, the client that we started with, had an overtime claim for 80 cents, literally 80 cents. And nobody would ever sue for 80 cents. It just wouldn't make sense. But his claims, you know, were the same as about 750 other people. So, you know, that case settled for, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars for an overtime settlement. And, you know, nobody would have ever pursued their rights individually. So it allows people to band together and, you know, in this case, get their proper overtime pay. That's a great example, too. Can you just walk through to the extent we have not attorneys listening, the difference between a class action and a collective action? Sure. So a class action typically, you know, 
once it's certified as a class, once a judge says, hey, you can pursue this as a class, everybody's automatically included unless they choose to what we call opt out. Whereas a collective action, which is often done, for example, in like wage cases, you have to affirmatively opt into it. So you'll get something in the mail that says, hey, your employer has been sued. If you'd like to join in, you can. And the practical difference between the two of them is, you know, everybody who is part of a class action and, you know, ends up waiving their rights at the end of it and potentially will benefit. Whereas a collective action, you know, you typically see people opting in at a rate of, you know, I don't know, from 10 to 20%, which is much lower. Is there a reason? How did you end up getting into class and collective work? Is there, was there like an aha moment? Is it something you fell into? How did you end up in this? You know, we just started talking to people who had wage violations and we started taking really small ones. I mean, I remember our first, the very first collective action that I filed, we ended up, I think, having four people opt into it. So very, very small. And, you know, it just kind of grew, grew from that. So I don't know exactly why we got into them, but it was just something that, you know, naturally came with our practice area. Over the years, I've seen that there's a lot of a lot of violations, a lot of employers don't follow the rules, either intentionally or unintentionally. And, you know, it's there's just a lot of people out there who are being underpaid or having their rights violated. And we try to figure out what those violations are and, you know, get compensation for our clients. And that's a good point. If, if you don't mind just expanding on a little bit, just a benefit to the individuals. If you have someone who's owed Maybe it's only a couple grand, but that can be pretty significant for them, especially if they're able to band together in the form of a lawsuit. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things I love as a as a class action lawyer is when people call up or and they're and they're like, why am I getting this check? And it's wonderful. And I've had like, you know, we've had cases where like against restaurants where they where they had tip share violations, for instance. And, you know, these just a common class member is getting a check for like 20 grand and they had no idea it was coming. And, you know, we've had people break down crying. They're so happy to get these checks and they didn't even know their rights were being violated. So it's just, I mean, it, it's such a nice thing to do. And I just love, love working with people that, you know, are just so grateful for, for everything we do. Do you, and maybe you're not comfortable, let me know if you're not comfortable sharing, but is your process of investigating a class or potential class violation different than the way you would investigate a single plaintiff case? Yeah. I mean, we try to talk to other, other people to the extent we can. Sometimes we can't, but, you know, we try to figure it out. And yeah, I mean, we treat, we treat class cases very differently than, than individual cases. Um, are there are there any challenges to that? Are there reasons why this may be a, a teeing one up, but, you know, are there reasons why you sometimes can't talk to other people or you have a hard time getting at other witnesses to corroborate what your client is saying? Yeah, well, you know, when people are still employed, they're typically loyal to the people that feed them. So, you know, it's hard to get other people to talk. But, you know, usually people have friends, usually at especially when you have, you know, large companies and, you know, especially if they're not really high level employees and, you know, typically they're, they're, if they, if they feel they're being mistreated, they're happy to, happy to talk. All right. So 
We had Jim Zuris of Stefan Zuris on last year, who's another really accomplished plaintiff side litigator who's done a lot in in similar ways to your firm and in in being out in front of different new and exciting class action causes of action. And you're both very experienced in litigating BIPA, but his isn't the only one that's aggressively litigated BIPA. So your firm actually just announced a really big settlement this week for, this is public, right? I can... uh... Sure. Yeah. Okay. So your firm this week just announced a big $6 million or nearly $6 million class settlement against a plasma collection company, I think. Can you talk a little bit about that case? Sure. So yeah, we've we've been involved in a lot of claims in the Biometric Information Privacy Act. And this one's a little bit different. You know, our typical case involves employees working for a company where they have to scan their fingerprint, for instance, to clock in and out. This one is different in that this is people who go to donate plasma. They had their their identity verified based upon a finger scan. And we kind of learned this. We, we started investigating BIPA cases back in like 2016, 2017. And one of the nice things is when you you know, actually talk to your clients, sometimes you learn some some really interesting things from them. And I, I remember we were talking to one of our clients who says, you know, you know, I also have to do this when I go to donate plasma. So lo and behold, we start looking into the plasma industry and there are kind of four major companies that collect plasma. And so we ended up suing all of them because they <laughs> all use the same system, not not the same exact system, but they all use systems that require a finger scan. So we've, yeah, we've, so this one settled for around 6 million, like you said, and then we, so there's a total of four that we filed. We've settled three of them for collectively almost $25 million. And the amount of people that donate plasma is, it's just huge. I mean, the, I think between the three cases we've settled, there were two close to 250,000 class members that we represented in those cases. And yeah, so it's, you know, again, it's, it's a means of verifying their identity. And, you know, it was great to get checks out to these people because for the most part, they're very low income. You know, they're people who have to sell their plasma to make ends meet. And so it's just, you know, it's wonderful to, to see them benefit from that. Did you run into the, now I'm just curious, and at the risk for our listeners of too technical question, I've litigated a few BIPA cases against facilities that have a medical bent, whether a nursing home or otherwise, where they assert, and I realize the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on it, but some appellate courts have now, the HIPAA exemption to BIPA. Was that a defense you guys were facing in those cases, that HIPAA is an exemption to BIPA that would have applied in these scenarios? Yeah, so we dealt with that, and they claimed that they were healthcare companies essentially, and that because this was done for healthcare treatment, that's an exemption under BIPA. And so we briefed that issue and got a great ruling from Judge Chang in the Northern District of Illinois, where he went through and analyzed it really, really closely and published an opinion that you know, analyzed it and rejected all the arguments. There was also one by Judge Kendall that that was very good. And so, I mean, it, it was kind of ironic. These same companies claimed while they were claiming they were healthcare facilities, in our case, they claimed when they would be sued for disability discrimination that they provided no healthcare and therefore were not places of public accommodation. So they had very conflicting positions, and we were able to cite some really nice admissions that they had made in other briefs throughout the country. So it's incredible you're able to get what was it, 250,000 people, a check for, you know, the misuse of their biometric data. 
walk us through how do you get the information for all these people? How do you get them checks sent out? The whole gauntlet of that process. Yeah. So what what we do, particularly in a class of this size, is we use um, a third party administrator to essentially handle all of the mailings. The defendant provides all of the contact information, and it it's actually very seamless. You know, they there we, we used to actually do that all in house, and it was crazy. Like I would have, I'd bring it home to my kids, and like they would sit there and like put on labels and stamps and, you know, I would pay them like 10 cents an envelope to, to put all these things through and my, my dining room table. And then as our cases got bigger and bigger, we ended up outsourcing. Um, and my kids gave me a hard time about like sending their job off seas, um, or for the administrator, <laughs> but it would have taken them like a year to, to get all these done. So the notice period would have lapsed while they were getting stamps on. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're a lot more expensive than the administrator, I learned. So, but anyway, yeah, so we use an administrator and they're, you know, we use a couple of different companies and, and they do a real efficient job of that. And then what's really cool is like they can send, you know, in the old days, they would just send out checks and now they can send the money via PayPal, Zelle, all different ways, which, which is a lot easier. So switching gears from BIPA a little bit, some of the other, now I know, a couple of these cases, I think perhaps Potter Bolognas may have started before they merged with you guys. So I, I want to be careful and please correct me if I'm attributing a case to one firm or another. But there were a couple of interesting settlements that are listed on your for your firm. One is against Chicago Public Schools and the other is against the Cook County Public Defender's Office. Let's start with the CPS case. Can you talk about that one a little bit? Yeah. And and so this is one that I had absolutely no involvement in, but Fair enough. yeah, but, but, you know, it's, it's in the process of going through the approval process. So the, the lawyers at, at my office, Pat Cowan and, and Robin Potter, they just did a great job on this. I mean, it, it's, it was a case when the Chicago public schools were going through their turnaround process, they laid off a lot of people and the allegations in the lawsuit were essentially that it disproportionately affected African-American teachers and staff. And so earlier this year, they reached a little over a $9 million settlement for the benefit of those teachers. And I, I mean, I was so proud of them for, for the great work. I mean, Patrick in our office just, you know, led the fight on that. And it, it was a tough case, I thought. And I thought they did just just a magnificent job. I mean, there were experts and, you know, up and down to the Court of Appeals and, you know, statistical sampling and all sorts of things that are way over my head. And they just, you know, pushed that. And, you know, it was the kind of member thinking like, man, if if a teacher would have called my office and said, hey, I was laid off along with hundreds of other people, but, you know, I think it was because of my race, like that would be the type of case where you would say, well, yeah, but you got laid off with a whole bunch of other people. And so if they closed your school, you know, that's that's the breaks. It's an unfortunate situation. But, you know, by putting together statistical modeling and whatnot, they were able to, to move forward with these cases. So it's just a great outcome. And it's in the process of going through the the approval and claims process right now. What was the modeling they ended up doing to kind of draw the dots together to prove their allegations? You know, I'm I'm not that into it. So okay. we'll yeah, have to bring Pat so. on. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, for sure. I think Patrick would do a great job of explaining all the statistical analysis and all the experts that were used and, and yeah, just the outcome of it. So what about the case against the public defender's office then? Yeah, so that's another one that was really led up by Nieves uh, Bolaños, my partner, and and a few other people at the office. Alex Taylor worked on that, Robin Potter, and it was really, really just a, a group effort where they just horrible facts where the Cook County public defenders, you know, these wonderful people who are, you know, taking jobs that to, to help indigent people charged with crimes were experiencing like inmates masturbating in front of them or at them or exposing themselves. And, you know, they had, this is what they had to deal with as they're going into work. And so, you know, I mean, that's, you know, as a, as a lawyer, you could imagine like being exposed to that kind of stuff. I mean, I get upset, like if we don't have the right kind of coffee at the office and they're dealing with stuff like this. So, um, so they brought that case involving, you know, what was essentially sexual harassment. And I think the case settled for $14 million. And so they did a, just a great job pursuing that case. And we have a, we actually have one right now that we actually just got a favorable ruling on it's the it's against the Pontiac Correctional Center downstate and just just got past a motion to dismiss and somewhat similar allegation involving the, the employees down at the, the correctional center there. Can you talk a little bit procedurally how like these two cases are different than like the BIPA cases you work on, both from like the investigation standpoint, but even how you talked about a little bit like you need you're using experts and statistical analysis a little bit more on these ends. So how do these kind of differ, even though they're all class actions? They, well, right. I mean, factually, they're very different. I think that the time that went into the the last two cases, we we talked about the, you know, the one involving the Chicago public schools and the, and the public defenders. I mean, the amount of time and work that they put into this, it was just unbelievable. And you know, unlike a BIPA case where the facts are very similar from case to case, though those just, I mean, they worked on that, the one involving the teachers, that's been going on for like 10 years. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in costs went into that. And, you know, experts and yeah, everything, you know, and I mean, we have experts in BIPA cases as well, but, you know, just just huge amounts of, of time, tough issues. And so, you know, those are the, that's why I was so proud of them. I mean, they just did a great job with, with both of those cases in terms of litigating them and those, you know, they're tough cases and, but they were real, both really important cases. And I think they made a lot of change and they made a lot of people's lives better. I, I'm smiling is the wrong word, but I'm, I'm thinking back to this because my wife actually was on strike in 2012. She was a teacher for a week at a actually, oddly enough, a turnaround school in Inglewood on the south side of Chicago, where they had just fired everybody and got to see that that, you know, obviously wasn't just going to magically fix, fix whatever fix means with quotes that the school needed fixing per se, the school and all the problems. But that was 2012. Like that was her first week as a teacher. She's been a teacher for 10 years and this case is now getting resolved. So that's wow. some real dedication by the attorneys to get into that. And these are tough cases, David. I mean, you know, I, I think practically to some of these public defender type cases, you know, whether the case against Pontiac or the case against Cook County Public Defender's office. These always seem challenging. I remember Neela National brought in some 
when the conference was in Chicago in 2018, I think, they brought in some lead plaintiffs on really important class and individual litigation who'd been in really noteworthy cases nationwide. I think somebody against University of Iowa's athletic department. And there was a woman who'd been a correctional officer at a private prison facility in Florida or a system And I remember hearing them talk about, you know, these people talk about, well, these are occupational hazards or there's nothing we can do to protect these employees. So A, the plaintiffs who bring them are courageous, but to take these cases on, these are not straightforward matters you guys are fighting. Yeah, I don't know that there's a question in there. I'm just complimenting you sort of on these really complex and important cases and saying, I don't, not everybody would take these on. Yeah, and and the investment you take on too, with time and resources, it's, it's admirable. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I really hope that in the future we can do more of them and, you know, try to lead to change in some of these areas. And I do think that once defendants are sued, then they they do start to change often, not always, but but often. And sometimes it rubs off on other, you know, it hopefully rubs off on others as well, you know, when they realize that there is liability that they have to take take steps to protect them. So switching gears once again, another area where your firm does some work is false claims or key TAM work, whistleblower work. Charlie Weissong, a couple weeks or months back, I have no concept of time anymore, but at some point, Charlie came on to talk about doing some of that work. Can you talk a little bit about what those cases are to your firm or how you view what those are and some of the more notable ones y'all have handled? Yeah. I mean, I love these cases. This is probably my favorite area of the law. And, And it's an area that I frankly, haven't been involved with TUMAP. In fact, I started working with Robin Potter's firm on some cases that I had many, many years ago, and we co-counseled because I just didn't have the expertise in that area. So I reached out to Robin, who's who's a wizard at them. And that's, so that's kind of how I, I got to know them. And, you know, these are cases where the taxpayers are getting screwed and people are stealing money from the government and an employee comes and says, you know, hey, I, I have some information about, about something where somebody is cheating the government. And, you know, what we typically see, the most common that I see is healthcare workers that know about that, you know, where there's just, I mean, Medicare, Medicaid fraud, and especially now with all the money that's been spent on the pandemic. I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars between the pandemic and then the, you know, 2008, all the all the mortgage crisis. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable how much money the government has spent. And I, I think I read in the Tribune this morning that $2 billion, with a B, dollars in Illinois alone for unemployment fraud was, was taken. And so- there's all this fraud going on and, it, and it's a way to bring the money back to the government. And the nice thing about it is that the person who is the whistleblower gets a piece of the money and, you know, and it, and it can be quite lucrative. And so you, be, you bring these cases, they take a huge investment because the cases go on for easily a half decade. I mean, that's relatively quick for one of these. And, and, you know, you ultimately, it's, it's really nice to see the government get some of its money. And, and of course, it's nice to get your fees from it and see your client get get money out of it. But I just find them fascinating. And I'm always intrigued at the different schemes that, that companies come up with to, to steal money from the government or to violate the rules. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating area of the law. So my understanding in our firm is only... 
on our own starting to scratch the surface of this sort of thing is that a lot of the time you see this in where I most commonly think of this as nursing homes, right? You've got some unscrupulous operator. The incentive structure at the nursing home is that, you know, they're paid by head by the government, uh, whether state, federal, both or otherwise. They have incentives to do financial incentives, not moral incentives to maybe cut corners, bill for things they're not actually doing procedurally, stick people on hospice because the reimbursement rates might be different who are not actually near death and qualified to be on hospice for years at a time, things like that. So I, can you talk about, I, I know part of the, we, we know from Charlie's episode, quite often you have to keep these things close to the chest because talking about them can blow up the whole case, but are there some you can describe or certain industries you've covered on these that you can get into some detail about? Yeah, sure. So we we had one, here's one that's that's public. I kind of got a kick out of it because our client didn't even, you know, she didn't even know that it was a, she, she had no idea there was fraud. She came to us because she was mad. She was fired. And there, you know, we didn't, we decided that we weren't going to pursue an employment case, but it turns out that she, we were about to file an overtime case for her because she was being paid by both a lab and the doctor that she worked for. And so another lawyer in my office mentioned he was about to file, file it. And I said, well, why are you, you know, why are you, why was she getting paid by a lab and a doctor? And so it turns out what was happening was the lab was paying like half of the salary of the employee. And so we brought this case saying that was essentially an incentive for the lab for the doctor to refer his lab business to the lab. So that was the claim. And that file that, you know, was under seal for many, many years, the government ended up intervening in it. And, you know, we, we resolved it after I think it was five and a half years. So you never know where these cases are going to come from. We see a lot of them in the laboratory area, but it's really it's really all over. I mean, there's IRS whistleblower claims. There's, you know, all sorts of different involving mortgage fraud. Healthcare is huge, like I said. It's just anytime you're dealing with government contracts, government money, there are people who are going to take care, you know, advantage of the system. You see a lot of it with people upcoding like, you know, doctors saying that that putting down a procedure that wasn't necessary or overbilling for a procedure. I got to say, I do a lot of injunction work. So a lot of my cases can sometimes last three to six months. So five to 10 years is a world of difference, at least for yeah. me. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. I mean, the government has these under seal and they're doing their investigation and, you know, you and they don't tell you much, right? I mean, you you can try to try to poke and prod them for information, but but they're pretty tight-lipped in terms of what they're doing often. And so, oh yeah, it just sits there under seal. They often get extensions. And sometimes they call you up after, you know, two years or whatever, where you've been waiting and they just, you know, say we're we're not going to intervene in the case. And and then you're you're you may decide to do it on your own or or you're just done. So it, it can be frustrating for sure. So before we wrap up, I wanted to cover one other area of your work, sexual abuse work. It's obviously a really important topic. We've had folks come on to talk about the Me Too movement in generally, but this falls, and I guess a little bit like the key Tim and, and to an extent the BIPA cases, will at times fall outside of the employment law realm. Can you talk about how you ended up in this in this area as well and what sort of abuse cases you're helping survivors pursue? Yeah, well... 
<laughs> the the first case that I had, it, I, I remember it well. It was this woman. Well, she was she was a young lady. Calls me up. It must have been 12, 10, 12 years ago. I don't know exactly. And you know, she describes how she's having or she she was abused by a guy named Robert Kelly, who you may have heard his name's R. Kelly. So this case goes on for for a bit. Then we resolve it and I can't get into the the details of it, but she's she's really a remarkable person. She ended up writing a book. She was featured on Netflix. There's a there's a popular documentary. I forget the name of it, but she was featured on on Netflix. And she, you know, so in fact, when he was convicted in New York, I want to say a year or so ago, she was the government's number one witness on the stand. And so that was really cool, empowering her from, you know, the situation to, to see her help put this man behind bars. And we we had one of the pieces of evidence that she came to us with was a piece of clothing that had a semen on it. And so I had R. Kelly's semen in my file cabinet for like, I don't know, a half decade or so. And then I get, you know, I get a subpoena at some point or I had, I, I don't remember exactly. Oh yeah, no, I gave it to my client to, to turn it over to the government and I look on the, I think it was the cover of the New York Times, like about a year ago during her trial. And there's that piece of clothing, you know, a picture of it that it turns out it had R. Kelly's semen on it and it was used to help convict him. So Max, you look like you're blushing a little bit. I was coughing and trying not to, but then I'm like stifling, not laughter, but just like excitement that like you've buried the lead here a bit, David. We didn't know the R. Kelly cases were going to come into this. Well, you know, the, the thing I like about that case is that guy was a monster and it was really nice to, you know, I mean, I had such a small role in any of this, but to, to see, you know, justice kind of finally coming through. I mean, his victims were all African-American young girls. And, you know, if there was a guy doing what he did out in like Naperville with to, to white rich girls where where I live, you know, it, it would not have gone on like like it happened there. But this guy was just allowed to do this for for decades. And he got away with it, I think, in part because of the law. I mean, what what happened in these cases is he would do, you know, he would do things and then he would he would abuse women by things is what I mean. And then he would have confidentiality agreements. And so you have these gag clauses that don't allow people to speak up and it scares people from standing up and, and telling what happened. And then what happens is the abuse continues to go on and on and on. And you saw that, you know, with Harvey Weinstein, you saw it with Bill Cosby, you see it with different people. Donald Trump. Um, and I see it in my employment practice where, you know, you'll have a sexual harassment case against a prominent, a prominent person in a company and the people will sign a confidentiality agreement. And so there's very little that can be done with it. And, and I'll say as a lawyer, it's a tough position to be in because your client, of course, you have to get them the best result. And so typically they're happy to sign a confidentiality agreement if it means that they're going to get a substantial settlement. Um, and I think that often is what's in the best client in the client's best interest. But from a societal standpoint, you know, it's it's not so good to to have these things and to allow that kind of abuse 
to continue on without people knowing about it. So I, there have been some good changes in the law recently, I think, in, in that regard. But but I think there can be a lot more. Well, and it's so rare that good and evil is cut and dry in our cases, right? Like even in even in harassment cases, there's often complicating factors that make it a gray area under the law or what have you. But I agree with you. Like there are a few people who deserve to be locked up and and against whom justice should be brought more than than him. So no, I mean, besides it being prominent, it is really important work. And I think everything you said makes sense, right? Like these power structures exist to protect people like this. I read an analysis of the show Better Call Saul uh, recently or before the say recently it was like before the premiere came out and i'm like months behind on it but somebody said that there's an indictment of the law in the show that the law is not there to mete out justice it's there to protect that which those with means already have and and has really draconian penalties when you run afoul of that and you think about how perfectly our plaintiffs have to act like how selective we all have to be in our cases that we bring for all the reasons that you just described, because there is such power on the other side, because the resources are there, because they can bring unethical lawsuits that maybe the anti-slap laws you would hope could protect people from, but it's not always how they function. And that proof is often really hard to establish and that somebody can just throw their hands up and say consent or, and I understand when there's minors, it's not that simple, but there are a lot of roadblocks. So it's it's really important work. And I don't know, these are hard cases and it's important that people like you keep taking them. So thank you. When to bring it full circle, this is the advantage of a class or collective action. You have people who are owed money that's significant to them that they can band together against a more powerful entity that has a lot of resources. Yeah, no, I think it's such a honor to be, you know, empowered as a lawyer to to help these people out, whatever it is, you know, whether it's causing a company to pay money that it owes to its workers for, for unpaid wages or, you know, helping, helping, you know, a victim of sexual harassment or sexual abuse have a voice. And, you know, it's just something that us as lawyers have a real unique and special, special gift and, and ability to help people. with. David, before we let you go, do you have anything you would like to plug coming up that your firm is doing, that you're doing a talk, anything? You know, I guess I'd, there's a the, the NILA National Conference that is coming up in the the end of this month. I don't know. Will this will this be on before then? Okay. Well, yeah. No. I if anybody has the opportunity to go out to that, most of our firm is going, and it's just a terrific, terrific conference, and I highly recommend it. It's really for for me. It was just a the first one that I went to, which was probably six years ago, seven years ago, eight years. I don't know. It really helped, helped out my practice and helped me professionally. It's your turn, man. Yeah. So we like to end our episodes with a shout out of the week. It's just some positive way to end our shows, especially in this COVID era. So it can be a book, it can be a kid, it can be a TV show, it can be a person, pretty much anything. Pet, we've had that. So what would you like to shout out for this week? You know, I think just my whole team at work, they're great. And, you know, I'm so lucky to work with so many awesome professionals, both the lawyers, the paralegals, everybody there that's that does such terrific work. I'm I'm really grateful. They, you know, they all work hard and they're they're just so devoted and and I'm really glad that that they work with me. Amit, you got anything to shout out this time? No, no, it's usually just for the guests. Have you not 
and listening to our episodes? I listen occasionally to the one we put out. That's not true. Sometimes we shout people out too. All right. I, I got nothing. Do you have something? Is that a, okay, are I you do setting because, it up for yourself? Yes, I am. Because I got a personal one this week. My brother actually is in a Netflix show. He's the lead voice. And it's a he plays a neurotic transgender Jewish kid. So it's the role he was literally born to play. Is this um, the same brother who was in Spider-Man? It is. Oh, that's um, so cool. Anyway, if anybody's listening, you should do everything David said. On a lesser note and personal one, please check out Dead End Paranormal Park on Netflix. My brother's the lead voice actor on that. So anyway, thank you, David, for everything you're doing for our bar, for survivors of abuse, for people whose biometric privacy rights have been violated, for victims of wage theft. Really, everybody, you and the team at Fish Powder Bolaños are representing. You guys do awesome work and you advance the interests of our bar and, and of workers generally. So thank you for everything you do. Yeah, thank you for having me. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.